The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to Exodus chapter 18 this morning. We will uh, continue and walk through the book of Exodus verse by verse. Uh, We've been here for a while, but uh, we thank God for His Word and we ask Him to speak. Just as we sang, we are dependent on trusting in Him to speak to us. Well, have... uh, have you ever received unsolicited advice? Like just, you know, you didn't ask for it, but someone felt the need that they should share their wisdom with you. Um, it's been several months back, even maybe a couple of years or, or a year or so back. But um, one morning, my kids had gone to school. Makai's driving, and he was driving at that time the, the truck that we had bought for him. And... Uh, I thought this truck, I, I loved this truck. It was a 91 F-150, and I thought, this thing is going to be such a great project. And then I realized it's probably more mechanically than they trained me for in seminary. And so um, I, I get a call, and, uh, and the truck had broken down. And it had broken down literally right in front of the high school, which is the worst thing possible if you are a, a teenager and your vehicle breaks down there. To make matters worse, a police officer stopped, and uh, and... I guess he turned the blue lights on. He turned the blue lights on? No, he just stopped, and, and it's, it's Woodruff, so it's, it's a big deal in Woodruff. And, and he helps push the truck out of the road into the high school parking lot, and so my kids are so embarrassed, and, and you know, I'm the worst dad in the world for buying this piece of junk truck, you know. And, and so I go down there, and, uh, and they go on into school, and the police officer was great, and, uh, and I'm, I raise the hood as if I know what in the world I'm looking at. And the uh, thing won't start, it, it just won't run, and, and uh, I, I'm puzzled, I'm, I'm there, and out comes the custodian uh, there at, at Woodruff High School, and uh, he walks by and he says, hmm, that ain't good. <laughs> to which I thought, I'm glad you cleared that up, because <laughs> I was debating whether this is a good thing or not, you know, I just wasn't sure. And uh, you know, sometimes people just feel the need to just weigh in. He didn't help me. He just gave me some advice, um, uh, or, or at least an opinion of, of the situation. Today in our text, we are going to see Moses' father-in-law. Last week, we saw him become a believer in the one true living God of Israel. Today, I mean, right now, right after that, he's offering advice. He's offering advice to the to the, the leader, the prophet of Israel, this nation that is somewhere between 600,000 and a million people strong by now. He's the one guy that speaks on behalf of God. He has God's ear, walks in and out of God's presence, and Jethro, brand new convert, offers him advice. What leads a brand new convert to start giving advice immediately? Well, it's not what you think. I've been in church, I've served churches for over 20 years now in, in various ministry roles, and I have, I have experienced my share of unsolicited advice uh, on, on ministry and how things should go, but it's not, this is not the situation or the case here. What motivates Jethro is not a personal preference or just a need to be in charge. Instead, what motivates Jethro is concern. Concern in, in two places. Concern for his dead, tired son-in-law. You're going to hear in the text as we read through it, he's just exhausted. He looks at his son-in-law and he's concerned for him. He knows he can't keep this up forever. And the other thing is he's concerned for his brand new community. 
the community of faith, the community of people that he's now a part of. And he looks at the community and he sees that this thing's not good. It's not going well. It's, it's, it's not serving the community. The people are frustrated. Moses is, is, is exhausted. This thing can't go on. And so Jethro gives advice. And he doesn't do so in a way that he pushes himself on Moses in a, now look here, boy, kind of way. But instead, two different times in the text, you'll hear him say, let me give you my advice. Now, if God leads, if God directs you this way, God be with you. In other words, if, if God leads you to follow this advice, then by all means, take this advice. Jethro, in essence, is saying, take this with a grain of salt. Moses would be faced with, at the end, I want to preach the entire text before I actually start preaching, but at the end of the text, Moses is going to be faced with whether or not he would receive this criticism from this brand new convert, his father-in-law, nonetheless, or whether he would reject it. I mean, he, he, could, he could well up in pride and he could say, who do you think you are? I mean, I know you're my wife's dad, but hang on a minute. God didn't call you to this position. He called me here. But instead, he doesn't say that. He doesn't take that attitude. Instead, he puts his advice into practice. He humbles himself and he displays the mark of real leaders in that he is teachable. He takes this posture and I want us to see it today. So let's read this passage and then I want to show you just some things that we might miss as we walk through this. Follow along as I begin reading in Exodus 18, beginning with verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good, like that custodian in Woodruff. This ain't good, right? You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you, or God determine whether this is from him. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men who are uh, from, from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. But any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God direct you, God will direct you, you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people. Chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. 
Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided, for the, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now, we may or may not get through this entire passage. I, I plan to, but I want to be sensitive to time, and I understand that there's only so much you can sit down and stomach. Uh, there's only so much food you can put on a plate and be able to take in before you have to push the plate away. So I want to be uh, sensitive to that as we walk through this, this passage. Uh, some things we might miss as we walk through here is, first of all, the never-ending neediness of people marked by depravity. The never-ending neediness of people marked by depravity. And we see here in verse 13 that Moses sat to judge the people from morning till evening, from the early morning hours till the sun goes down. He's there all day long. At first, we might misinterpret this scene. and We might say, man, look how important Moses has become. I mean, man, people just clamor around him. I mean, he, he's so stinking important that this, this is a positive thing. I mean, until now, Jethro looks on and Jethro has only seen his son-in-law tend sheep. And now he looks and he sees his son-in-law as the prophet of God's people in the wilderness and how they clamor around. And surely Moses may be thinking, my father-in-law has to be impressed with me. But that would be to misinterpret this scene. If we step back, the reason for their clamoring around Moses becomes apparent. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary said, people never run out of needs. So when we take on responsibility to help meet those needs, we will have as much work as we can handle. And anybody in ministry knows that's true. Uh, another commentator said, the problem exposed here is not simply Moses' frailty, but the people's. What we want to see here is that if the people had it all together... If they had no problems, if they had no issues, if they weren't marked by depravity, if they had no needs, then they wouldn't be gathering around Moses to begin with. So before we run into this practical outworking of an organization of a people, let's first stop and see the need to become organized. The depravity of mankind. The Bible teaches total depravity. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 it says, none is righteous. No, not one. This is total depravity. R.C. Sproul, in explaining what total depravity is, in case you're hearing that word and saying, I don't know what that means, R.C. Sproul said it this way. The idea persists in our humanistically dominated culture, our man-centered culture, that sin is something peripheral or tangential to our nature. Somehow we think that our evil deeds reside at the rim or edge of our character and never penetrate to the core. Basically, it's assumed people are good, inherently good. But total depravity, R.C. Sproul goes on to say, means radical corruption. We must be careful not to, to note the difference between total depravity and utter depravity. To be utterly depraved is to be as wicked as one could possibly be. Hitler was extremely depraved, but he could have been worse. I, R.C. Sproul says, am a sinner. Yet I could sin more often and more severely than I actually do. 
He goes on and he says, I'm not utterly depraved. I am totally depraved. Total depravity means that I and everyone else are depraved or corrupt in the totality of our being. Now listen to this. There's no part of us that is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words. We do sinful deeds. We have impure thoughts. Our very bodies suffer from the ravages of sin. So we're not saying that every single person is as bad as they possibly could be because you and I know when we look at people that we work around or that we live around, that some of those people seem to be good people. We're not saying that people are as wicked and as evil and as depraved as they possibly could be, but we are saying that there's not a part of any of us that is not touched by sin. That this body, these hands are capable of anything. This mouth, this tongue is capable of anything. These ears and these eyes are capable to go anywhere that I will take them in and of myself. But by the grace of God, there go I, right? Every single bit of us is touched by sin. So you can imagine, let's go back to the wilderness. Moses dealing with these 600,000 to a million people. Every single one of them, Moses included, totally depraved. Their hands, their feet, their ears, their eyes, every single bit of them touched by sin. Not as wicked as they could be, but wicked to, to the core. You can imagine that with all these people living every single day, displaced and on the move, how many grievances there would be every single day. Every single day there are offenses going on in the family of God. The reality is things haven't changed. People, all, all people are just as depraved as they have always been. Sometimes I hear people say, it just seems like it's more wicked today. The reality is there's no more wickedness today than there ever has been. There may be new expressions of wickedness but there is no more wickedness than there ever has been. People are depraved to the core. To the grandparents in the room who think that little Johnny can't do anything wrong. I know I'm treading here on thin ice. But you stand little Johnny in the living room where God's throne is. And I guarantee you, you'll have to say more than, more than once, stop, don't touch that. Put that down. Right? Because standing next to the infinite holiness of God, the most innocent among us in our eyes is filthy and desperately wicked. As we look in and we see the, the, the 600,000 to a million people coming to Moses every single day, Moses, one man, and a depraved man at that, trying to answer them all, we understand that this is a huge problem. It's never-ending neediness of people marked by depravity. So the question I would ask at the very outset of this is, how about you? If you're real pragmatic and you, you like the practical things, you may be wanting me to get to those things in this passage. But before we go there, how about you? Are you aware of your own depravity? Are you aware that you, to the core of your being, are capable of anything? That you are 
outside of Christ. Wicked to the core. Now, I'm not saying that, that we have no power now over this. I think Christ has died and it's the same power that lives in Christ, uh, that raised him from the dead, now lives in us to defeat sin. I'm not saying that we are slaves to this, but I want you to be aware. I think we need to be aware of our own depravity outside of the grace of God. The other question I would ask there is, are you patient with the depravity of others? Imagine the, the heated controversy that would happen in this community filled with sinners offending one another. Not understanding, if, if we don't understand that every single person is depraved, then we may be tempted to be impatient with others. We will overlook our own faults, but we will key in on the faults of others. Are you patient with the depravity of others? Second thing we might miss in this is not just the neediness, but the wealth of wisdom found in God's word. We, we just sang a song. We need to see you. We need to hear you. We want to know you. And the place where we do that as the community of faith, this side of the cross, is when we look into the word of God. Keep in mind, Moses was, was God's prophet. He was the only one that spoke for God on God's behalf to Israel. They didn't have Bibles sitting on shelves in their tents that they could go and open up and see what was on the mind of God. They couldn't, they couldn't just go there themselves. At this point in the history of redemption, Moses is the man. And when Moses spoke in his official capacity, God spoke. That's what it meant to be a prophet of God in the Old Testament. The people were eager, look in the text, the people were eager to, to know God's word in verse 15. Moses said, they come to me to inquire of God. I mean, from morning till evening, they're coming to inquire of God. They look to it, to, to, to the word of God, to settle their disputes. Verse 16, when they have a dispute, they come to me. I decide between one and the other. Moses is not just saying, I'm playing favorites. He's saying, in my official capacity as the prophet of God for these people, I'm laying out God's judgment. They're eager to come to the word of God to settle their disputes. And then they look to it to know how to live their lives. Moses goes on and he tells his father-in-law, I make known to them the statutes and the laws of God in verse 16. They want to know God. They, they want to come to the word of God to settle their disputes. They want to know how they should live. They're eager to come and hear what God would say. And I would ask us, myself included, all 10 fingers pointed back at me, is this the way we see the word of God? Is this the way we come not to a prophet today, but to books bound in leather sitting on shelves where we can easily and readily at any time access the mind of God. Is this how we see God's word? Do we see God's word as a treasure worth searching for? Job, you're familiar with the story of Job losing everything and God allowing Satan to, to take things from him but not touch him. 
Job, in, in, verse, in chapter 28, verses 12 through 19, listen to Job's thoughts on the word of God. Where shall wisdom be found? Where's the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth. It's not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass or crystal cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Job knew that the wisdom of God, the mind of God, was the most valuable thing that anyone could acquire. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told the parable and said in one verse, Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like, a, like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I realize that's talking about the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is really revealed to us in the pages of this, this book. Do we see it that way as if we have this treasure that is worth losing everything to gain the mind of God here? Jesus himself is called the living word. Do we see God's word as the only way to have a fruitful life? Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Do, are we approaching life this way? To say, God, you've not promised me anything, but you have laid out wisdom for living before me. So God, may I turn there before I turn anywhere else? Do we see God's word as the way to, to live? Psalm 119, verse 105 said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Do we see God's word as that through, through it is how we know God himself? In, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17, Paul is speaking here and he says that the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is how we see God's word. Do we say we need to see you. We need to hear you. In their day, they had one man to come to, dependent on God to speak through him. But God would move from there progressively throughout the history of redemption, and he would go from having one man who they would come to, to in just a little bit, we'll see in Exodus, writing out the law, so that everyone would see and have access to what is right and what is wrong in the eyes of God. And from there, he would go on. He would progressively reveal his will and his word throughout history. Jeremiah 31, he makes a promise in verse 33. He promised, he promised to put his law within them. 
I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, here they're having to come to a man to hear, but God promises one day he'll write it on the hearts of his people. Those who trust in Jesus have God as their teacher. You say, well, wait a minute, if God is our teacher, then why are we sitting here and listening to you? Because the reality is God uses men who teach his word. He he teaches us through that. But ultimately, God is our teacher. Thabidiani of Wiley said in a sermon on this, this passage, he said, the finest penmanship in the world has been etched upon your heart. God in his perfect handwriting has been writing his law upon your very heart. With his own hand, he's been teaching you. As you read your Bible and as you hear the word of God preached, it's the spirit of the Lord who takes the word of the Lord and presses it into the heart of his people. And I would say to you, I stand in this pulpit every single week knowing that it's not dependent on me to be your teacher. If it's dependent on me, we're sunk. You know how many times I have to repeat things in my house? <laughs> if it's dependent on me, we're sunk. Because you all tune out, you're on your devices, playing games, you know, or whatever the case may be. I don't know if you really are, but that was probably convicting at that moment, if you were. Uh, <laughs> if it's up to me, we're going nowhere. But I stand in this pulpit every week. Greg stands down there and he teaches those students every week. Every Bible teacher on this campus or anywhere else that knows their Bible and trusts their God knows that it's not us who's implanting this into your heart. If you're a child of God, God somehow supernaturally takes his word and the words that come through me as I preach a sermon and he etches those things on your heart and he grows you as he writes his law on your heart and you no longer have to come to a man and stand all day long waiting and maybe he'll never get to you and you go back home frustrated. Instead, you go daily into his presence. Oh, that we might be a people who draw close to God through his word who clamor around him and wait long to hear it, who look to God's word as the final arbiter of all of our disputes and who seek to live our lives by its wisdom. We live in a day and a culture that doesn't care about the Bible, is biblically illiterate. This proves itself out when candidates running for the the president of the United States stand and can, can, they don't know how to pronounce the names of the books. And a nation says, Oh, well, I'll overlook that. And if you say, well, he's endorsing a candidate. I'm not endorsing a candidate. I'm pointing out to you that we live in a culture that says on one, on, on one side of their mouth, I am a Christian. On the other side, they prove they're not. I don't know the condition of the man's heart. But that we, oh, I pray that we would be a people that are familiar with God's mind because we spend time waiting to hear Him. Third thing we might miss as we walk through this passage together. Moses made an imperfect mediator between God and man. Moses made an imperfect mediator between God and man. When Jethro comes and he says, what you're doing is not good. 
I mean, Moses probably was taken back a little bit. He was probably shocked, but might, there might have been a little bit of relief in Moses' mind. I mean, look at what we know about Moses. In verse 18, he got tired. I mean, imagine hearing case after case after case all day long. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, my dad, one of my dad's favorite cars was the Caprice Classic. Little did my dad know that that would become popular in this culture for other reasons. But uh, my dad's favorite car was a Caprice Classic. And I remember I was born in 1974, which makes me, you know, wherever I am in, in your eyes. And I can remember going on vacations, driving to the beach in that Caprice Classic. Dad in the front, mom in the passenger seat, and me and my two sisters in the back. And you all know the game. Here's the line. Here's the line. You know? Don't be coming over on my side. And, the, and my little sister, bless her heart, she had to sit in the middle, which meant she's on the hump, right? Her feet on the hump. And lo and behold, dad would take a curve and she, she would come sliding over on us. And, Get off of me. What are you doing? You're on my side. Right? And when I would shove her back that way, my other sister would say, what are you doing? Get to the middle. That's your spot. Right? Imagine the frustration of my dad in the front seat. This is a long trip. Yeah. Barrel down. Dad, can we stop? No, we're not stopping. We're getting there, you know. This is what Moses must have endured all day long, listening to case after case after case. It wouldn't take him long to wear out. Moses got tired. His limitations frustrated the people. In, in verse 18, imagine, I mean, you, you get there early, you get in line. You stand in line all day long next to the person that you have a grievance with. Imagine that. You wait all day long. And you get to the end of the day and Moses says, that's it. Court's adjourned. What? I've been here all day and you didn't get to me? His limitations frustrate the people that go back home with no resolve. Because he's the only one that they can go to. Moses was alone. His, his very loneliness makes him an imperfect mediator. He's a mere man. He doesn't have the eternal, perfect fellowship that existed in the Trinity. He's alone. He, he doesn't even have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that you and I have today. He had to come in and out of God's presence. Aren't you glad that that's not our experience now? That we don't go to a man that gets tired or who doesn't get to us and that's frustrating for us, who is all by himself. We don't go to someone like that. Instead, we should thank God for Jesus who is the perfect, complete mediator. He never gets tired. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, He never sleeps nor slumbers. He has no limits. I mean, 24 hours in a day, what's that to Jesus? He exists outside of time. In the beginning was God, right? Geography? God doesn't have to pack up and get in a car or a plane or a boat to leave from one place to go to another. Geography's no limit to Him. He's omnipresent. Well, will He make wise judgments? Are you kidding me? 
He's wisdom personified. He is the word. Well, maybe he'll be dishonest. Maybe he'll take a bribe. Are you kidding me? We read in Deuteronomy chapter 10 in my Sunday school class this morning that he takes no bribes. He looks for no dishonest gain. You know why I know that he would take no bribes? It's because he volunteered to pay a debt that he didn't know. A man like that doesn't need bribes. Yet, even though he's God, which means he's never been alone, Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself to the point of not considering his equality with God something to be hoarded or held on to, but instead he emptied himself and took on the flesh of, of a man, became a man, lived a perfect life, and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Moses made an imperfect mediator between God and man because Moses could only represent one side of the parties. But Jesus, being God from before the foundations of the world, took on flesh. And so he, he is God and he also became a man. So he can, he can represent man before God and he can represent God before us. And the God-man went to the cross to pay a debt he didn't know. He's the only one who can represent us before God. My question to you coming out of this is, who or what are you relying on to represent you before God? What are you putting your hope in? If it is anything or anyone besides Jesus and Jesus alone, you will be let down because that person or that thing will become tired. They will have limits and it will frustrate you in the end. They are alone in the process and they cannot represent both sides, both parties. Only Jesus can do that. While Moses makes an imperfect mediator between God and man, Jesus is the perfect mediator between God and man. Which brings me to my last point in this, this text. We'll get through all of it, Lord willing, unless something happens in these next few minutes. Notice God's design for polity of his people. Now, polity is a big fancy word that simply means how his people are governed how they are organized in a, in, a, in a civic way. Well, we see in verses 19 through 23, God lays out, even there, the church hasn't been born yet. Right now it's the nation of Israel. But even then, even when God is laying out the nation of Israel, he has the polity for the church of God already in mind, and he will model it and display it here. We see the role of Moses in some ways mirrors the role of a lead teaching pastor. Now, don't hear me saying to you that I'm, I'm Moses to you because I'm not saying I'm the prophet of God that goes between you and I'm not saying that at all. Jesus alone does that. But his role here in some ways models, mirrors the role of a lead teaching pastor. And I say that based on this. In verse 19, his first responsibility is to intercede for the people. 
He, he told Jethro, I represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. He's interceding for the people. And then in verse 20, his second responsibility is to teach the people. He warns them about the statutes of law and makes known to them the way in which they must live and, and walk and, and how they must go. So Moses here has a twofold responsibility to intercede on behalf of the people and to teach the people. Sounds a whole lot like Acts chapter 6, doesn't it? Where there's a problem that arises in the church and in Acts chapter 6, the, the widows of, of, uh, of, of one particular group of people are not being served. And so the apostles come together and say, uh, this can't happen. This is not good for them to go unserved. And so we'll select men from among you so that they might serve and meet those needs. And we will continue to what? Pray and teach. We see here God's design for the church all the way back in Exodus. God has given every church a pastor or pastors whose primary responsibilities are to preach and to pray. That's the primary, the bulk of what I am to do. If, if a teaching pastor, if I get bogged down with too many things outside of that, then I can't do those things effectively. If, if I'm bogged down with meetings and committees and, and um, administration issues of the church, then those things take time and they will take time away from my time in the word and time in prayer. Some people hear that and they say, it just sounds like you want to be lazy and you want us to excuse what you really want to do and let these other things go by. This is not me saying this. This is the Bible saying this. This is my calling primarily to preach and to pray, to preach and to pray. It doesn't mean that I won't lead committees or carry out administration. I just have to keep those things in their proper perspective. Hence, the role and the character of elders. Verses 21 and 22, we, we see here in this passage, Jethro doesn't say, okay, Moses, I get it. You know, you know this, this is way too hard. You just need to give up on these two things and start meeting with the people. He doesn't, he doesn't tell Moses to, to do away with his calling. Instead, he says, Moses, you need to re-up on your calling. And to do that, you won't be able to continue to hear all these cases. You're going to have to select from among you men who are able to judge the small things so that you can concentrate on the primary thing God has called you to do. We see here the character and the role of elders. In verses 21 and 22, there are, uh, there are character um, qualities that are required. He says select capable or able men. That they would be representative of the people. They would be from all the people. In fact, twice in this passage, it says from all the people or from all of Israel. That it's not just a, it's not just a select group of people here, but it's a people that represent the entire faith community. That, that the man would be godly. That he would be wise. We see that in the, in the requirement here where it says that he would fear God. To fear God is to say, God... You have the right to do with me whatever you will. So God, in your grace, you've extended to me a relationship with you. So God, by your spirit, lead me. The Bible tells us in other places that, uh, that 
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This would be a person, a man who is reliable, says that he would be trustworthy, and that he hate a bribe, that he would be incorruptible. Now, I know no man is truly incorruptible. But he's to look here across the, across the community of faith and say, where are those men who are, who are living this faith in God, who are reliable, who hate a bribe? Select those men. And I would suggest to you that that sounds a whole lot like 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, in those first several verses there, the qualifications for an overseer or an elder... An overseer must be above, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we see all the way back here in the Exodus, this principle of a primary calling, enlisting men. We fast forward to the New Testament in every church, in every New Testament church, There was not one man who was the man for that church. There was a group of pastors. Theologians say it this way, a plurality of elders. What is their role? Well, their role was really the same thing that Moses was called to. They were to rule in a smaller way. They were to also intercede and they were to teach. They would do this when these smaller groups would come to them and present cases and they would, they, would, they would pray and ask God to give His judgment here. They would teach what, what God's will was. And in so many ways, they were to do what Moses was called to do on a smaller scale. We see here a, a very early precedent for a plurality of elders. In every church, I've already told you in the New Testament, there was a group of men. And, uh, and I, I've been your pastor now for over six years, six and a half years or so. And um, I've talked about this off and on for, for a number of those years. And I, I'm praying through and, and hoping in the next weeks and months to come to begin to lead us down this path. To begin to to just lead us into at least a conversation to explore what the Bible teaches about elders and eldership. I hesitate to even mention that today because I know in mentioning it, I'm creating a thousand questions. And I can't answer all those questions now, but I will say this to you. I'm an open book. This is not an agenda of mine trying to bring about some sort of rule here where it will be easier for me to get my way. Take it for what it is, but I can, I can, before me and God, tell you that my desire in this is to say, God, if this is the way you've designed your church to be, then God, I want to lead the church to be that. I would ask you to pray. I would ask you to join us in praying for that. 
I would invite you to to do research and study that. I would invite you to come and ask questions. I want you also to see in the the passage this morning, verse 20, see the result. The result in the congregation was that Moses would be able to endure and that the people would go away in peace. And I think this is what takes place. This is what transpires when we say to God, God, we don't want to operate as a church the way we've always operated. And I don't really think that spirit lives here. But I think when we say to God, God, we want to be what you have designed for us to be, I think God blesses that. It doesn't mean that we will never have any any disagreement or anything among us, but I do think that God instituted this so that the burden is shared among a, a plurality of elders and the church exists and lives in peace where they are not going away frustrated by the limitations of one man. So here's the application out of this passage, and I'm done. Number one, ask God to show you your own depravity. Ask God to make you aware of your own depravity so that, and here's the question that we should be asking more and more, so that, what's the, what's the reason for that? It's not so that we would walk around feeling all this weight of the shame of my depravity. Instead, it's so that it would drive us to come to him and his word more regularly and more eagerly. Ask him. Ask him to show it to you. Number two, begin reading God's word regularly in order to hear from him. If you don't have a plan of how you're going to enter into God's presence through his word and draw close to him, you need to get one and we can help you with that. Some people... Like in in marriage, they say marriage shouldn't be work. Marriage should be easy. If two people love one another, it should just flow. Well, any married couple in a room will tell you it doesn't always just flow. It might have been flowing in the dating, but maybe the honeymoon's over, right? It's It's no different between us and our relationship with God. There's a reason why Scripture tells us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. There's nothing wrong with planning. I plan dates with my wife. Does that remove the romance? Absolutely not. We know that if we don't plan those things, then they may never happen with our schedule. So make a plan to begin reading God's word regularly in order to hear from him. And number three, pray that God would lead us as we explore biblical eldership here at Abner Creek. There's probably more application out of that than maybe maybe God spoke to you in a particular way. I would just tell you, obey that. If the Spirit of God is speaking to you, He's not telling you anything that's going to contradict His Word. And so if the Spirit of God and the Word of God are leading you in a direction, why would I, as a depraved, fallible man, tell you not to do that? We serve. We serve a God who knows the end from the beginning. Don't we? We see in this passage all the way back the Israelites coming out of Egypt, leading them in the wilderness, a picture of what would become the church that Jesus would die for. I want to be that. Don't you? Let's pray together. 
Lord Jesus, we love you. And God, we thank you that you love us. Lord, I pray that you'd lead now. Speak to the individuals in this room or who are listening. God, lead us to renounce um, sin and idols that we would hold on to. And God, lead us to believe and obey you. Do it for your own name, I pray. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to respond, to reflect and respond. God's led you to some particular action point, then do that today. I'm going to be seated down here on the front. I'd love for you to come speak to me. Uh, anything and everything that I can pray with you on, I'd love to do that. There'll be people in a room out these doors that are in a prayer room. They're not there to counsel you. They're simply there to pray with you. If you'd like to just share that and let someone pray, then move about. Um, as, as Ethan and musicians lead us, you respond to God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.